Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes. And this is Burned by Books. Contemporary literature plays marvelously along the margins of our lived experience. Allie Smith writes her seasonal quartet with COVID slowly infecting the narratives. Louise Erdrich and Jason Mott capture the roiling energy of protests after George Floyd. Gary Steinkart may have written the first great COVID novel, but on occasion we find ourselves with a fictional cri de corps that comes to us with an urgency that imbues the narrative with something like desperation. This is the experience of reading Kalani Picard's debut novel, I Will Die in a Foreign Land. Set in Ukraine's recent post-colonial past, but with deep time roots that travel back in song and narrative to the beginnings of Slavic culture and to the germ of what would become Ukraine. The novel introduces us to a history that is both familiar and opaque. While not set precisely in our present, the eerie echoes of bloody conflict from within and outside the country feel imminent and oracular. The braided stories of Katya, Alexander, Misha, and Slava are drawn together by the Euromaidan protests that were an example of extraordinary common action against tyranny, but which forecast Putin's annexation of Crimea. The novel itself is a beautiful pastiche of forms, novelistic plots mixed with songs and folktales, manifests of passengers killed in downed planes or in the melee of protests, all working to build a feeling, the urge for a democratic voice to speak against violence and despair and for something like love. What a treat it was to learn of this novel from my local bookstore. To add to its flood of glowing reviews, I Will Die in a Foreign Land was recently named a New York Public Library Best Book of 2021. It is yet another triumph from the indie press $2 radio, 
and I urge you to run and buy a copy. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kalani Picard. Russia is again amassing troops on the Ukrainian border. There are threats of more sanctions from the US and the EU, but those come with a tacit understanding that there is likely little the world can do to stop Putin should he decide to invade. It is within this frightening context that Kalani Picard's extraordinary novel, I Will Die in a Foreign Land, enters the scene. I Will Die in a Foreign Land is a story of contemporary Ukraine that is inseparable from this looming geopolitical crisis. But it is also a lyrical call to look deeper into the nation's cultural past, to see the richness of human experience that cannot be reduced to its relationship to the czars, the Soviet Union, or Putin himself. It is the story of four people whose lives become inextricably interwoven during the Maidan revolution that led to the ouster of the anti-democratic president, Viktor Yanukovych. Katya, a doctor tending to the wounded, Misha, an engineer living in Kyiv, Slava, an activist devoted to the cause, and Alexander, a former Russian KGB agent who mysteriously arrives in the center of the protests to play piano amid the chaos. Kalani reveals the connections that each character has to the roots of this conflict and to a communal understanding of how humanity is preserved in inhuman times. Formerly, the novel challenges traditional discourses of the historical novel, presenting itself as a collage of folk songs, cassette recordings, press releases, diary entries, and so much more. In spite of the diversity of forms, the effective experience of the novel is one of a developing wholeness, a deep well of emotional truths about our commitments to one another in times of extremis. It is a fearsome read that defies easy categorization while announcing itself as necessary reading for an increasingly navel-gazing world. What a pleasure it is to welcome one of the brightest new talents working in the U.S. today. Welcome, Kalani Pickhart. Well, thank you so much. Wow, what a amazing intro. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for being here. <laughs> I, I wanted to start with what feels to me to be the incredible urgency of your novel. We learn in with each passing day of intelligence that says that there is um, all but a likely invasion or at least incursion by Russia into Ukraine. And I wonder what it feels like to have written this novel at this particular moment. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I started this book in 2016, which was in the midst of, it was actually just right as the um, 2016 election was happening. And there was a lot of anxiety with Ukraine and Ukrainians um, because they're, you know, they, they had had these amazing and um, moving and powerful protests only two years before in Kiev. And one of their most significant allies, the United States, was elected a president that was closely tied to Vladimir Putin. So it's been an interesting experience having written this book while 
while things have been so ongoing mm -hmm. and unfortunately not not in the direction that you know I, I think that I and um, many Ukrainians would hope for. I think that writing the novel and then having it released into the world at a time where essentially the stakes are getting higher and higher is I'm glad that it's released when it has, because I feel that hopefully readers who engage with this book will be more aware of Ukrainian history and the situation um, that's happening now and understanding it a little bit more. Um, but at the same time, it's incredibly difficult um, to have written something like this. And in some ways, you want a happy ending. You want a a resolution. And unfortunately, um, there is not one. I think often of Ukraine, and I, I mostly am fearful for them. Um, so it's, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated space to be in, because I knew while writing the book that there were a lot of important things happening um, in the midst of, you know, the aftermath of the Euromaidan, but we're still seeing that now. And um, I'm, I'm still hopeful that there can be an end to the conflict, but with a man like Vladimir Putin, I mean, we've seen in history again and again, and unfortunately in Ukraine, they've seen again and again these sort of tyrants laying claim to the land and the people. And it's it's very complicated for me, I think, you know, so. Yeah, I can only imagine. And I feel like the, I mean, the, the irony of it is that the wonder of, of reading this book is that you feel very immersed mm -hmm. um, in Ukraine and, and, and feel kind of with the people in these urgent moments. And at yeah. the same time that that um, awakening uh, leads you to another understanding, which is that the, the major powers of the world are likely um, going to be little help to mm -hmm. a country that could could desperately need it, um, mm -hmm. in part because uh, whatever we think of Putin and Russia, they control um, the pipeline to energy in Europe, and that right. and that makes it a very difficult decision. Um, even yeah. though it's very clear what the what the human decision should be. Yeah, um, agreed. So I, I want to start with the very beginning of your novel, and that is. You start with a musical invocation by the Kobzari. Am I saying that right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Kobzari Chorus, the Bards of Ukrainian History. And I'm wondering if you would read the prologue that has them enter in as uh, a special kind of chorus to the novel. Sure. Prologue, enter Kobzari, singing. Where does it begin? Uh, depends who you ask. It could begin with Scythians and Cimmerians. Slavs and the Rus, Queen Olha, Vladimir the Great, Yaroslav the Wise. It could begin with Ki, Ilya Muromets, the Cossacks, the UNR, the UPA. One thing is certain. It doesn't just begin here, my friend. It doesn't begin or end with Stalin. It doesn't begin or end with Yanukovych or Poroshenko or Zelensky. It doesn't begin or end with Putin. The war has always been quiet. Like a pulse, it can be forgotten. 
unnoticed. Like a pulse, we can feel it as long as we're still here. Lean your ear into the chest of a corpse and you'll hear it. Emptiness like an echo. Have you ever listened to your wristwatch when it stopped ticking? The sound of it, that aching hollowness, like a dry fountain cracking in the sun. We've known thirst. We've known hunger here. Ah, uh, my friend, you ask us where to begin and how can we? How many times have you carried your dead through your streets? We sing the history of Kiev. Come and you will see. Thank you. The Kobzari were uh, repressed by the Tsars and the Soviets. And here you have them invoking the complex and naughty history of Ukraine, specifically beseeching the reader not to reduce Ukraine's history to the Soviet Union or Putin, which I may have unintentionally added to by my first question. Yes. And you describe them as carrying the vibrations of all Kobzari before them. Why are the Kobzari important for setting the context of the history your novel interacts with? So as I was doing research for this novel, I mean, with as with so many, I guess, narratives of colonization, there's usually an oral history associated with um, the people that inhabit a land before they're colonized. Um, and in Ukraine, there was a lot of movement for, um, there was sort of this um, renaissance of Ukrainian literature in the 1800s. And it started, it started causing problems for Russia because, you know, as they're trying to sort of like homogenize um, the region, um, having a different, <laughs> having a different language in there, um, you know, sort of creates an otherness um, a separateness. And um, as with so many other languages, it was, there was an attempt to destroy it. And so the Kobzari here, to me, were a reminder of that, um, not only just the Ukrainian voice, but also the reality that um, many, many people were trying to extinguish them. And it felt very relevant to now um, with your first question in relation to, you know, Russia coming back and, you know, trying to, to sort of reclaim Ukraine. There's also this undercurrent of reclaiming culture. And so the Kobzari sort of for me, because they sort of represent that um, Ukrainian language in the song, um, they also represent like its history. And mm -hmm. I felt it was only fitting to start there. And yeah, so the um, invocation at the end, um, come and you will see, is also a invocation that happens at the beginning of like the first written history of uh, the Kievan Rus. So um, I oh, think fascinating. that, yeah, so um, yeah, it, it was something that I, I wanted to include in the book. And um, the poem sort of existed alone in a different part of the book at one point, but it became more fitting to have it right at the beginning to sort of set the stage that there's a long history here and we've seen a lot and we'll probably see much more. 
I, I think it's a wonderful invocation. And it also brings up what for your novel is a, um, a really important leitmotif, and that is how music courses through the narrative heard, unheard, um, referenced in, in historical form or in abstraction. And it becomes more and more crucial as the novel goes along. Alexander's piano teacher tells him that music is a powerful and dangerous thing and that we must do all we can to protect it. How do you see music as operating as almost a kind of secondary voice in your novel? Yeah, um, so I, music's always been really important to my life. I, I imagine a world without music. <laughs> I think it's like the supreme art. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I've always had a connection to it. Um, and I used to play uh, music when I was younger, played percussion, so lots of drums and things like that. And um, so in the book itself, I think that that's where a lot of the rhythmic voice kind of comes in um, throughout the novel. But in terms of the how it operates as a secondary voice, I think that with a culture, with Ukrainian culture, it's just so musical. There's just always this singing and, you know, lament songs. At Maidan, they sang songs um, during the protests. And that was my entry point into um, Ukrainian history and the story. And the further that I got into Ukrainian history and culture, music really just sort of came up. And that was a lovely thing to happen for somebody who loves music. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that the way that it works in the novel is um, partially a thread. I mean, there's there's this Ukrainian voice, um, the Kobzari and singing and um, the lament song. The, the title comes from a, a lament song, um, which was sung at Maidan. Um, during the, the funeral for the Heavenly Hundred. And the Rite of Spring enters the book um, as a sort of symbolic piece of this. Um, for me, the Rite of Spring has always felt like a violent piece that, of course, I mean, in the ballet, as, as Alexander describes, there's a sacrificial version at the end. Um, but beyond that, the, the music itself, to me, has always been a portrayal of spring as a violent act, um, these sort of roots taking grip into soil and then shooting up these blooms. And just the like act of that is just, it's not, it's like childbirth. It's, there is an inherent violence in it. And so these protests begin in November of 2013, and Yanukovych is ousted by February, and it's early March that Crimea is invaded by Russian troops. And so we've landed in a spring. Um, so I think that for me, it was just, you know, using music as a sort of anagogic thread throughout the novel to give the reader a sense of connection between 
this Russian interpretation of the pagan Slavic culture, which would be the Rite of Spring, and then also engage the um, or Ukrainian bards, the Kobzari. So there's a kind of like an echo there and kind of creates like a bridge throughout the narrative while also speaking to these other like thematic things going on in the book. Yeah, it's what I like about the the various invocations of music is that you sort of scratch the surface a little bit and you find oh there's there's a lot of deep connections here and these are these are very carefully chosen to signal a certain kind of experience that people yeah. have with the music and and yeah. I I think that works really well. Yeah, the, thank you. For a reader kind of flipping through this book, what they encounter is a series of demarcated chapters that then on closer identification appear to be wholly different kinds of discourses. I was thinking as I read it of um, Mikhail Bakhtin, the literary critic who thought that the novel was either becoming or was the dominant form of literature because it was able to make room for a polyphony of voices and forms. Mm -hmm. I Will Die in a Foreign Land is a pastiche of a lot of different literary forms, historical forms, artifacts, personal objects, music, as we've mentioned, and folklore. How do you keep a narrative thread with four main characters when you're vacillating between styles, tones, and forms? That's such a good question. Um, I think that for myself, I'm, I don't consider myself to be a very like detail oriented <laughs> writer. Initially, I'm very, um, I'm very restrained and um, I tend to be more minimalist in my writing. So um, the details that sort of arise in the book um, are very intentional. And it's been a lot of work uh, sort of filling it out to make sure that it is a more, um, that it is that like pastiche. I think that it's, I wanted it to feel more like a collage because there was no sense of I felt like a straightforward narrative for this just didn't feel true to Ukrainian history. It didn't feel true to um, how we experience um, memory and trauma. And for so many of the people in the book, that is, you know, they're all each experiencing their own, um, they're all going through an emotional journey and most are experiencing this sense of grief and loss. And as we all know, those things are not are nonlinear. Um, you can mm -hmm. feel great one day and the next day you feel very awful, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. So I think that when I was starting to work through this book, um, it was more important for me. I had two main goals. One was to tell the story true so to make sure that I was honoring the voice of Ukrainian people in this book and to tell it as real and as honestly as I could from the research I was doing. And then the other part of it was to um, really find the emotional center of the book in such a way that though these individuals are experiencing this trauma and pain, um, that 
there is some sort of um, hope involved with their journey. And for me, that ended up just essentially finding a way to um, integrate those two things helps me to really tell the story, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And once I got a sense of, I mean, in a more like practical way, I mean, I honestly, um, I wrote through each character voice um, one by one. So I understood Alexander's arc and Katya's and Slava's and Misha's. Then it became time to really contextualize um, the experience of being at Maidan. And um, the way to do that for me had been, I watched a number of documentaries and I watched, I mean, and I read a number of um, articles and there were um, some select journalists that I followed who were, um, you know, English speaking journalists that were living in Ukraine and reporting on it. And, um, so I, I, I stuck to those. And I think that um, that enabled me to sort of draw from journalism. Um, there's scenes in the novel that are a little bit of a documentary. Yeah, I think, I think it just sort of filled out um, a little bit more. Eric and Eliza from $2 Radio really did help in the sense of not only making sure that there was a balance of the narratives, but also that we could fill in and find opportunities to sort of further explain. Um, You know, Eric might say something like, you know, I'm not sure, you know, as somebody who's removed from this, what what this means or what this means, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And so there were moments where the the journalistic voice really becomes a... um, an access point for the reader to sort of ground themselves and understand where they are in the novel, what's happening and and all of that. So, um, I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. 
Yeah, as someone who was not familiar with um, a lot of these historical details, I feel like the novel is constructed in a way that you feel like you can understand why things are happening and you understand the the emotional and um, and political needs of the characters at, at these very precise historical moments. Um, I also really appreciated that these that even some of the kind of unexpected forms, and in particular, I'm thinking about uh, a chapter that appears only as the list of passengers who were mm -hmm. killed uh, when a flight from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur was shot down by pro-Russian separatists in Ukraine, and that that felt very emotionally resonant, even though mm -hmm. it was a list of names. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm thinking that this is both audacious and and ended up working really well, but I'd love to know why you decided to offer it in this very pared down form um, as a kind of document of loss and tragedy. Yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, there, there is the, the passenger manifest and there's also the list of names for um, those who died at Med. Maidan during the um, protests. And there's also a section that was interesting for me to just sort of do research on, which was phrases on Euromaidan protest posters, which were all real. I didn't want to lose the, the current event aspect of this. And also the fact that these are real people. Um, I've said in other interviews that, you know, the, the characters in this book are very real for me. Um, they're very, you know, I mean, they're parts of me. They're also, you know, from doing research in Ukraine and being able to be, you know, physically there, a lot of the conflict, a lot of just the book, just it resonated with me um, in that moment and became like real. And so it became like really important for me to, I don't know, it didn't feel right to write a book like this and not acknowledge the lives that have been lost and affected by this. Yeah, um, there's a different kind of weight and onus on on capturing real people's lives who are lost in, in something like this. You yeah. getting it wrong um, is not just, it's no longer a matter of literary error. No, it's not. I mean, these are, these are people who passed that, like they have living relatives, you know, these are people that, yeah, their lives have been lost, like, you know, senselessly. And it's, it just became, I mean, it's been moving for me. I, I, I couldn't imagine, uh, you know, this book is, is, is hopefully what I aimed for it to be was sort of a, um, a testament for the Ukrainian people. And um, with that, you know, comes the the names of those who have been lost. And yeah, so I mean, having the, the passenger mass manifest, even though for the, the Malaysian Airlines flight, these were not Ukrainian people, mostly they were um, Dutch. <sighs> yeah, they were there. In, it's an international flight full of people who have come you know, are going home to Malaysia or, you know, there's a crew on the plane that was just doing their job and happened to fly over Ukraine and was shot down. Literature has always stood with history as a parallel discourse for truth telling. And you've talked about the research that you've done 
um, and the way in which you've grabbed up historical discourse and brought it into this fictional world, which is both a reflection of Ukraine and its own imaginative space. And I wonder why, given the given the pointedness of this history, why fiction was the right discourse for your historical story. Yeah. So I think so much of the research for this book was obviously um, nonfiction and and really delving into you know scholars who have done the work and journalists who have done the work. Um, and even just everyday people who were filming and um, telling stories. Um, so a lot of it was, you know, was true history. Um, I think for me, though, fiction, fiction is a way for <laughs> a writer also to access parts of themselves that are not easily, you know, that they might not be able to comfortably access in, in nonfiction. And so even though this is a story about um, Ukraine and a conflict and um, Ukrainian people, there's also a masking of my own emotions and um, struggles that I was going through at the time of writing this book. Mm -hmm. So um, in a way, fiction is a, a means for me to access my own pain and experience of the world. And I don't think that, I think that it becomes a richer story when you're able to um, connect with characters or people in the, in the, in a story that feel real. And I think that it was an important thing for me to be real in this novel as much as possible, um, mm -hmm. which is an interesting thing because it's, you know, it's fiction. It's not like real, it's not real in the sense of these things have happened to me, but the emotional core is real for mm -hmm. each of the individuals. So, yeah. You mentioned Chernobyl and I'm struck by the fact that at least in the United States, it has roared back onto the scene as a moment of um, uh, of increasing interest as a historical tragedy, whereas it is in Eastern Europe, of course, remained um, consistently such since it happened. Mm -hmm. um, but there is both the literal radiation from Chernobyl that is such an important pathos in in your novel um, and a kind of atomic unease in a country ready seemingly to explode. Mm -hmm. The extraordinary um, Belarusian poet Valjina Mort wrote these lines about Chernobyl and a deep history. Radiation, an etymology of soil directed into the future, prepared a thesis on the new origins of old roots. For your character, Misha, the effects of radiation are immediate and physical, the loss of his wife, the devastation of his family. But like Valjina, you seem to be calling on the Chernobyl catastrophe as a way of linking the older, deeper wounds of historical tragedy to the present. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, Chernobyl and the soil surrounding the area, um, the air surrounding the area, um, you know, being um, sort of, you know, poisoned. I think that there was something that uh, stood out to me in, in reading about Chernobyl. It wasn't initially something that I had thought about including 
in the novel, but I was reading about the um, older generation that lived in the area, and they appear in the book in the form of Misha's mother, and essentially um, return to Chernobyl um, because it's their homeland. And so for me in interpreting this, um, it sort of echoed the greater narrative of the book, which is that, um, you know, these people are fighting for their their homeland. Um, and what is home? And where is home? And what does that mean? And what happens when your home is being taken away from you? Um, and Chernobyl is one of those examples of something that, you know, the Soviet government you know, wanted to sort of cover up and pretend sort of never happened. Um, and, you know, the May Day Parade goes on um, in Kiev just a few days later. And it's just a furthering of that sort of like erasure of Ukrainian people and culture. And yeah, I definitely think that it, it speaks to um, like a much deeper, like historical um, tragedy and the pain associated with it. I mean, people being kicked out of their homes in Chernobyl, um, not knowing why, losing everything that they've had. And one of the most fascinating parts about that is I read that the older generations that did return and lived off of the radioactive land had a much higher like quality of life and um, than the folks who stayed um, stayed away from the the land. And oh, I that's think that's fascinating. Yeah, it was it was really something that that moved me. So you know, the intention of Misha's mother like returning to Chernobyl is truly to sort of exemplify like this coming home and the um just how much that means to each individual and i think that for many generations of ukrainians and and people who have been sort of exiled from their homes i mean i'm also thinking of people in like syria for example who have mm -hmm. lost their homes and their land that they've had for generations and generations and um there's just a there's a trauma there that is impossible to heal um, I think, unless you are able to return home. I One of the things I really love and appreciate about your book is that there are many acts of radical empathy in unexpected moments. <laughs> Through the discovery of the tape cassette, which ends up being a linchpin for a lot of thinking about what has happened in the novel, we learn about the double life that Alexander has lived, both as a KGB agent responsible for crimes in Czechoslovakia and as a patron of the resistance in the Maidan revolution, playing his piano amidst the violence. And then there's Slava's romance with the journalist Dasha, Slava risks her life in the Maidan revolution, but falls in love with Dasha, who sees logic in the pro-Russian sentiments of some Ukrainians. Why was it important for you to bring to life good people who hold uncomfortable positions on the history and present of Ukraine? I think because that feels very much a, a timely thing, I think even in the US right now, is that you can be a good person and have um, different 
you know, a different perspective from somebody else, you know, um, I think that there's a lot of nuance in being human and how we experience um, political upheaval. And also the the conflict in Ukraine has never really ever been black and white. It's never been easy to just sort of say, you know, like Ukrainians all feel this way. There are people in Ukraine who do yearn for the the days of the USSR. Um, typically, it's an older generation, um, from what I understand. And that familiarity and sort of being protected by um, a larger, you know, entity and military mm-hmm. force and everything is very like comforting. And then on the other side, there's, you know, younger Ukrainians who are, you know, disillusioned with all of the like Russian influence and are like ready to, we want to be part of Europe, you know, we want to start over, we want to do this our way. And, um, but those narratives like coexist. And, um, and there's also, you know, a number of narratives that sort of like bubble up a little bit in the book, um, but don't take any sort of um, huge precedence, um, because I didn't want to get the reader too distracted. Um, but there's a, you know, sort of alt-right, um, very nationalistic um, movement happening in Ukraine as a response to, you know, Russian um, aggression. There's a com- so there's a complete swing all the way over to the to the right. Mm. Um, and there's also, you know, the, the swing to the left and, and everything. And so it's, it's just very it's very complex. And it's I wanted to try and like portray that. I mean, there was. When I was in Ukraine, there was, um, I was at a market and I started talking to this guy there and he was saying, you know, oh, what are you doing here? And, you know, you're American and why did you decide to come to Ukraine? And I told him that I was working on this book and he said, oh, that's something you'll have to be careful with um, because not, he's like, maybe in Lviv, you know, you have more of the, the pro-Ukrainian side, but he said, you know, in Kiev, it might still be, you know, a little this, a little that. And so I wasn't sure um, how much of that was necessarily true. But what I appreciated from that interaction was that, um, you know, in this book, there are going to be different perspectives from folks who are reading it. And um, it, it could be that there's maybe somebody who is has a more like pro-Russian perspective, you know. Um, Is there an irony there, though, that, and I found this so um, amazingly paralleling to the U.S., that if we in democracies ask for an openness to different points of view, that sometimes those different points of view will be explicitly about shutting down democratic polyphonous points of view. Mm. So it it seems like both an, a necessary act of empathy for people that we mm-hmm. don't understand their point of view, and at mm-hmm. the same time, a real danger to the future of openness to points of view. And I feel like yeah. you, you handled the complications of that quite well. Is there anything else about that that you were thinking of as you were writing it? Um, I think that especially while writing it, I mean, um, I wanted to at least show more of a, um, to kind of put, I mean, the, the extremism is truly like on the fringe in this book. And I don't think that it's quite taken, it's not at the stage where it's like taking over the main narrative, which I feel like is, 
you know, where we are in the U.S. right now, it's there. There's <laughs> there's no fringe. <laughs> it's just all here right now. Um, you know, it's very like one way or the other. Um, but you know, Dasha was an interesting person for me to write because um, she's Crimean, but she has this dedication to truth telling, and I think that she wanted. Her goal was to, um, if nothing else, fight propaganda. So I think that that was really a an important message f- for her is to show all sides. Because if you do show all sides, then you know hopefully there's this ability for the reader or the you know viewer who's interacting with the media to make up their own decision about mm. about things. So. Mm-hmm. It was, um, you know, Ukraine and so many um, Eastern European countries have been affected by like oligarchy and, you know, the um, media being really influenced. I mean, in Russia, it's that's how <laughs> that it's just they're the masters of propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in in this book, it was not necessarily, you know, um, I don't think that my goal necessarily was to show that like, oh, we can sympathize with this person's like sort of alt-right perspective or anything. Um, I think that it's more of a, we need to, like the media and the way that we tell these stories is like incredibly important because it offers folks the ability to respond with like discernment, but it's also called, sort of like calling attention to our own um, echo chambers that we might be in. So. Yeah. I think that's yeah. right. So you published with $2 Radio, which is one of my favorite small presses. <laughs> it's truly a family affair, and yet their small size hasn't stopped them from publishing some of the most exciting and well-received novels, essay collections, and poetry of the last few years. How did you decide to go with a small press, and what was your experience like with $2 Radio? Well, surprisingly, not many... Um, not many agents wanted to pick up a book about Ukraine. So <laughs> um, I was, uh, I was very, no, I'm just kidding. I, I knew that it was going to be a, a struggle for, I mean, it's a struggle for any writer. I mean, the whole aspect of um, submitting your work to agents and all of that is, is just a, it's a very, I wouldn't even say that it's a humbling experience. I'd say that it's a very like, uh, it's a very difficult experience. It's, it's nothing. Um, I think that it's a very humble act to even like submit your work. But um, yeah, anyways. Um, so I was not, I was not having a great um, deal of luck with agents for the book. And I had submitted to $2 radio and then two other small presses and um so and it was still sort of like out there in the the realm of somebody's inbox uh, agent wise so when two dollar radio reached out to me i was excited um because not only have they published um a number of authors who have a slavic eastern european connection so i felt that they you know, care and might be more familiar with this topic, but also it seems like a, a, a good fit, um, for the book in general, just because it's a story that is sort of not mainstream. It's not something that I'd say is like super sexy that is going to end up 
you know, on, you know, Oprah's list or anything like that. Um, Although I just found out that it's on the New York Public Library's best of the year list, (laughs) which maybe makes some of the agents you uh, you chatted (laughs) up uh, feel quite sad for their lack of foresight. (laughs) It's possible. Um, But to be honest, I I wasn't sure that $2 Radio was exactly the right place until um, I got on the phone with Eric and he was, we were talking about the book. And so they sort of had like a conditional, like, we'd like to publish this. Um, I want to have a conversation with you because we have some ideas on revision and we just want to run them past you. And um, the biggest revision that we did was um, Eric suggested that Alexander become the pianist in the book. There is a two. There were two different. Like Alexander was not originally the pianist in this. That's in a story. giant. That's a giant <laughs> a, change. Yeah, <laughs> yep, it was a giant change, and it was just so brilliant. Though I just thought that that was such a like. Of course, like that makes sense. You know, um, he is a pianist, and you know, it just it was just wonderful. So I was thrilled about that, mm. and I honestly felt like right off the bat that I had a sincere and real connection with. Um, Eric at first and then later on Eliza when we were working on copy edits just yeah it's just been an amazing experience and they've absolutely been the best the best for this book I I'm just so thankful for them and their keen eye and um, ability to help balance the the narratives and the um Did they, did they have a did they have a hand uh, in in helping you with the cover because the cover is amazing. Oh, they they did. So um, I was asked, and this was so exciting. Another reason why I was so excited to work with a small press is that I had some say in the cover design, and so I was asked um, after we you know started the you know, signed on and everything like that. One of the first things that Eric wanted to. Um, get out there was some, you know, the cover. And he asked me to come up with some um, images and things like that, that album covers, whatever just sort of like was my aesthetic, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, there was this painting that I'd seen somewhere on Instagram, it must have been um, just an account, I don't even remember the account that I was following when I first saw it, but the painting is Anguish um, by August Friedrich Schneck. And it's, it was on the, it was on basically like this collage that I created for them and all of these images. And um, they, they selected it right off the bat. And as soon as they like slapped the the title on it, it was just like, wow, that is, that's it. Like that's, there's no way around it. So it looks um, like the the book itself has the look and feel of like a special prestige edition of something rather than the <laughs> one that you get just from getting a, a hardcover, which yeah. I feel like is a, as you say, a small press can really kind of work with you in an intimate way about design that yeah. doesn't, doesn't have kind of preconceived notions of of what exactly is going to sell and the result is it's a cover that doesn't look like any of the other covers and and won't and won't be on those kind of silly tumblers of like (laughs) we're only doing these colors now Um, yeah yeah which makes me very happy because i get very tired of the (laughs) seeing the same cover again and again yeah yeah i think that it's just so perfect for the book that's like just love it 
Yeah. Um, before we let you go, I'd love to know some of the things you're reading right now, things that are inspirations to you or just that you're enjoying and, and would want to share to some of our listeners. Yeah. So I'm kind of um, dabbling a little bit more into the gothic a little <laughs> specifically like the southern gothic so um i just started absalom absalom mm -hmm. but i recently read godshot um by chelsea beaker and i loved that book that one was a very like it took me places that i didn't quite expect mm -hmm. um i had recently read it's um, got a great cover as well <laughs> yeah it's very glittery i love it it's just it's perfect um I recently read uh, The Deeper the Water, The Uglier the Fish by my pressmate, um, Katya Apakina. And I'd say as far as, you know, one thing that I really love doing when I'm trying to get the sense of like a, a new project or um, trying to get inspired is turning to film and music. Mm. And um, recently I've watched, it's available on Netflix. It's also, um, I'm going to go see it in the theater because I think it's going to be gorgeous. Um, the Power of the Dog, um, which is a film that just came out. Film this is with that, Cumberbatch, right? Yes, yes, yes. And it's just, it, I, there's a lot in there. I think like um, there's a lot of symbolism throughout the film that just really uh, helps tell the story. So I'm, very thrilled about that. I've watched it already twice in the last like oh, wow. week. So okay. yeah, so <laughs> it's something that I'm like, this is really interesting. And um, I think that it tells a, a very powerful story. So um, that's, that's really what I'm, I'm delving into right now. Those sound great. Although I um, always offer Absalom, Absalom with the serious caveat that it's <laughs> maybe one of the hardest books I've ever read, but also oh. one of the most satisfying to, to finish. <laughs> I've definitely, yes, I'd say I'm like, wow, I don't remember Faulkner. I mean, like, I know Faulkner is difficult to read, but I don't remember it's <laughs> difficult to read. <laughs> so I uh, definitely have had to reread a couple of pages already. So it'll be, it'll be, I'm in for the long haul, I suppose. Well, that's the only way to do it with Faulkner. <laughs> for sure. Well, Kalani, thank you so much. It's been a delight to talk to you and I can't wait for more people to discover this amazing novel. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. And I am very much, I need to get myself out to Ithaca to to see you and then also to go to Buffalo Street Books which oh, is please do. amazing so well Lisa I, I'm sure you saw it but just listed um, your novel as one of um, a, a small number of her favorites for the year so she has so, amazing taste she's I I just want to give her a hug. <laughs> so. Well, come and she will be excited to receive it. I have no doubt. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's all from me today. My thanks to Kalani Pickhart. She is absolutely a writer for you to watch. Her recommendations will, as always, be at the website burnedbybooks.com, where you can stream all previous episodes and find links to purchase books or even Burned by Books merchandise. If you have a moment, please rate us on iTunes or Spotify as it draws new listeners. This is my last episode of 2021. There are so many exciting guests lined up for the next year. 
Joanna Rakoff, Cara Blue Adams, Percival Everett, and so many more. I can't wait to share our conversations and to bully you into buying more books from indie bookstores. Happy New Year, and thank you for listening and supporting the show. This has been Burned by Books. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.